Amen. Well, friends, it's good to be with you. Uh, I had a we had a big-time week at OKC Community, a lot of great things happening, and I thought I'd just show you a few pictures from the week. Specifically, yesterday, we had a Class in SAS event that happened uh, here and at the Tower Theater. If you're with us for any amount of time, you know all about this, but just real quickly, if you don't know, a few months ago, we uh, established what we're calling Bringing Life Initiatives, and one of them was with local schools, and we hosted and sponsored a fundraiser for Class in SAS, which is, of course, a school right down the road from us. And we said, hey, how can we serve you? How can we help you uh, with some of the needs you have? We covered all the costs of the event, running the theater, all those sorts of things, and then did a lot of the legwork to make it possible for them, and it was a phenomenal day. I don't know the final tally of actually how much money it raised, but I do know that she said it's the most money they've ever raised with this particular event, and so that's good news, and, uh, and they were very, very pleased. And so it was just an amazing day, lots of people coming in, and uh, just, um, man, just our church just being present and our people. And so if you served with us, thank you so much. We had so many people show up yesterday to serve alongside, and it was a great, great day. And uh, just very, very, very thankful for all the opportunities God's giving us in that way. We also, speaking of local school initiative, we've been doing Rally for Schools, and I have a picture from this last week. About 30 of us went to a game uh, on Tuesday night, and um, Stephen's very excited, as well as Matt Bailey. I don't know what he's doing over here. Um, But anyway, we had a great time, and as you guys, if you know, we are sponsoring the Northwest Class and Boys basketball team this season, and Coach Jack, Jason Jack, who's actually been attending our church for a few months now, uh, he got his 100th win on that night, which was a really cool thing. And uh, so we, were just, we just had a great time, um, and God is just using these steps we're doing with local schools to, to open doors and what we always say, bring life to our city, and uh, just really, really great. We would even go as far as to say we believe it's changing lives, and because uh, we've seen it, and it's happening, and it's been really, really good. This week... We also, uh, another cool thing, I'm just telling about some of the highlights from the week. We hosted our friends and next-door neighbors uh, from Giant Worldwide, um, which is, Giant is a leadership uh, coaching organization that we have a great friendship with. And, and I just think I should mention every once in a while, because they have an event here every month, sometimes two events a month, in which they're coaching and leading 50 to 70 business leaders and industry leaders, and they're in here, and some of you have been a part of that. And I would encourage you, if that's at all interesting to you, if you want to serve alongside us in that capacity, happens during the day, but... Let me know. We'd love for you to jump in and, and be a part of uh, what, what that is all about because it's a really great way, again, that we just believe God is continuing and we continue to pray that he's opening opportunities for us to love our neighbors, to serve our city, um, to bring life in all different types of ways. And we really don't know what's coming at us sometimes and we just want to be faithful and we want to trust the Lord and the opportunities that he's given us. And, and I just kind of give, like, I'm giving praise and credit to the Lord because it's not boasting about what we're doing it's really, it's really giving glory to what God has been doing. We've been praying this prayer, and we just continue to see favor in different ways and opportunities come alive. You guys with me? It's so good, right? And so, um, thank you, TJ's with me. I like it. Uh, so, now that we all feel good about one another, uh, let's get into today's passage that talks about being the church because we have some work to do. <laughs> see what I did there? It kind of buttered us up. And now we get to get into the scriptures and go, what has God got to say to us? So today, as we, we are going to spend time in, I believe, one of the central passages, if you will, to what it means to be the church. And um, I told you a few weeks ago that Ephesians is probably the churchiest book in the Bible. It talks a lot about the church. And Ephesians 4, we, saw, we find some of the critically important, some critically important words, if you will, about what the church ought to be, what we ought to be thinking about, and what we ought to be doing. And 
So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at these words, and then we're going to ask ourselves, is this who we're becoming? Is this the church that we're becoming? Are we doing the things that the scriptures teach us? And we're going to cover some big-time things that probably could be covered over three or four weeks, so you can kind of see this as uh, you're getting three for one today. You know what I'm saying? Uh, it's a great deal, and the uh, best part is it's only going to be an hour and 20 minutes today, so um, <laughs> sermon-length jokes are the best, by the way. So just a reminder of some of the context of this passage. The Apostle Paul, he had planted a church in the city of Ephesus, and the church starts to explode, and the Spirit is being poured out on these people, and there's revival that breaks out in the city, and and Paul actually stays in the city for three years, which is the longest he ever stayed in any city uh, in the New Testament. He stays there for three years, and he builds up this church. He raises up leaders, uh, trains pastors and elders, and, and, and he releases people to start doing ministry. And later on, then Paul leaves. And a f- some while later, he finds himself in prison, because that's what happens. You plant churches, and you go to prison, apparently. Um, and so he is in prison, and he writes this letter to and then encourage the church and to share with them a few more words to build them up. And I mentioned, again, I keep reminding us of some of the things that we've been talking about thus far, but chapter four is a very pivotal chapter in the book because the first three chapters, he's all about the theology of God, the doctrines of God. He's praying for the church. He's praying to the Lord, and he's, and he's really building them up about all the great things of the Lord. And then in chapter four, he pivots and says, okay, so if we believe all this, therefore, is what we talked about last week, this is what it must mean for us and how we ought to live. And so we're in that conversation, and here we go with verse number 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. So here we have Jesus giving the world, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip the church. Verse 13, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and then we become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So I just want to pause here because this particular verse, we're going to try and, try and grasp some pretty big thoughts here today. These are, some, these are huge words in understanding what's called ecclesiology. And ecclesiology is, is just the theology and the study of the Christian church. And understanding these verses is critical to you understanding how the church has operated for centuries. Because what this is essentially saying is, Churches are going to be equipped. The people, they're going to be led. There's, God's going to call people. He's going to call apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, or pastors, another word for shepherds, and teachers to then equip God's people for works of service. Equip God's people for the work of the kingdom. This is what he's saying. And so you and I, we have seen this, and we've probably um, uh, been a part of churches that think this way. We're, we think this way. And I want to, to sort of explain this, but I want to show you something. I want to show you kind of what I believe is a very overly simplistic way of explaining kind of how a lot of churches operate. And we're going to, like I said, we're talking church. This is a churchy part of the Bible, and we're going to talk about it. But there's this, there's this kind of models that are out there, and I, and I hate to use word models because it's way oversimplification of a much broader thing. But where you have churches that operate with a clergy mindset and Ephesians 4 mindset, let me just explain what I mean by this. Is a clergy mindset is this. They, there's a church, they, they've grown enough, and they want to hire a, a pastor, and so they go hire a pastor, Right? And they hire that pastor and they tell him what they need to do. And the pastor then goes and he does all the visitation. And then he does all the marrying and marrying them and he buries them. And he, and he goes on and he does the administering. And he does the, the teaching. He does, he does all the work. And, and the people receive this ministry and they're thankful for it and they're grateful for it. But then 
if for whatever reason they feel like, hey, this guy isn't really measuring up to the amount of ministering we think he should be doing for what we're paying him, for what we're expecting of him, they eventually then go, you know what, it's probably best for you to go minister somewhere else. We're going to get ourselves a new minister that can upgrade. You know what I'm saying? So they upgrade their clergy. You guys with me? <laughs> Don't ever, yeah, never mind. Um, so, then the, so then what happens is there's a church that exists, and essentially out of this model, there's one minister. Do you get it? And if it's a larger church, it's a staff of ministers. Because you guys are familiar with this. And then the Ephesian 4 model says something different. And it's a church that says, hey, we're going to have some who are called. Some called, and in the language that we're reading here in Ephesians 4, some called to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, and they are going to equip God's people for works of service. They're actually going to equip people to be the saints and to be the ministers. And so what happens is then you have an environment in which there's, of course, the main calling of those who are leading the church is actually to equip. It's not to actually do the work, right? It's to help others together do the work. And so in this type of model, you don't just have one minister or a staff of ministers. You have a whole congregation of ministers. Are you with me? Right? And so this is, this is the idea that we, of course, want to be here. Are we perfect at it? No. Are we figuring it out? Of course we are. So with that said, let's keep reading verse 14. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love. Isn't that always a good moment when someone speaks the truth in love to you? Yes. We will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body, of him who is the head that is Christ. He keeps talking about maturity, doesn't he? From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love. So each part does its work. So Paul says some really huge things here. He, of course, he goes on, he says, hey, we're going to become mature, attain the whole measure of Christ. We need to not act like little children, so we're tossed back and forth by every teaching that throws out there. And, and become mature, mature in the sense that everybody finds their place and purpose in the body, and, and, and it'll make the body work better. This is what he's saying. So let me ask you, is the church, capital C, doing its job? I don't know. Is this church doing its job? Rhetorical. <laughs> Paul is essentially talking about becoming a mature church, isn't he? And we talked last week about maturity and the basic understanding of us growing up in Christ and becoming mature in Christ. We talked about that last week, and we, we of course, use the, the illustration of, become, you know, from infancy up through adulthood. And, and I showed you this, this picture of God 1.0 through God 4.0, and it was just an illustration. Of course, it's, it's got some flaws to it, but this understanding that as we grow in our theology, we're going to have these stages in which we walk through and have a grander and more holistic understanding of God. And it kind of happens similar to how we have a physical growth, and, and, we, and we grow into a mature believer. So, the question, though, is what, is what is mature? How do you define it? What does it mean to be spiritually mature? And that's a tough question. And truthfully, when many of us think about maturity, we think about it as an individual pursuit, meaning, oh, I got to do more devos, right? Or I got to really start, you know, buckling down on my spiritual disciplines. And we think maturity is sort of acquired through some sort of effort by how we maybe pursue God on an individual level. But Paul is changing the dialogue here, and he's saying something different. He's not focused on individuals so much. 
he's not even talking, he's changing it from like a me and a, a me, like a you and me conversation to a we conversation, right? It's the me to we thing going on right here. And he's saying, hey, this is about us as a church. He's talking about what does it mean to be a mature church, so mature that it'd be pronounced mature, that kind of church, right? All right? So what does a mature church look like? It's a church, um, well, let me just ask you, for a lot of us, we think, well, a mature church is, so they have a lot of people who know the Bible. I mean, the Pharisees knew the Bible, though, right? So I don't know if that's maturity. Or maybe it's a church that's just sold out to, like, social justice things, and they're always serving all the needs of the world. Maybe, maybe that's part of it. Or maybe it's a well-organized, like, body in which they have exciting worship, right, and top-notch communicating and polished ministries and abundant and well-timed serving opportunities, right? Maybe that's, I say that tongue-in-cheek, right? Maybe that's a mature church. In this passage, Paul speaks to four things about what a mature church is. And I want to sort of break these down. They'll be on the screen. But I'm just going to go through them, and this is what he says. Um, He says the first thing, a mature church is this. It's becoming more like Jesus. It's the first thing he says. Verse 13 says, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Meaning, become more like Christ. This is what he's saying. I want you to listen to this statement by a guy named Neil Cole, who's like a church planning guru. He said this. He said, ultimately, each church will be evaluated by only one thing. It's disciples. A church is only as good as its disciples. It doesn't matter how good your praise, preaching, programs, or property are. Nice job with the P's. No, it doesn't matter how good your praise, preaching, programs, or pop- property are. If your disciples are passive, needy consumers, not moving in the direction of radical obedience, then your church is not a good church. This is what he says. And this is, the, this, is, this is the challenge that most people don't actually view maturity like this. Most people aren't looking for a church, for example, looking, say, I'm trying to find a mature church. We typically aren't, whenever we're looking for a church, thinking about it in that perspective. A few nights ago, Christy and I were, um, we were looking for an insurance new insurance plan. I don't know if you've ever done this. We're on the computer, and you can actually click compare. You know what I'm talking about? And they'll put both plans right up next to each other, and you can compare everything. Like, oh, this one has a $5 copay. This one has a $100 copay. Hmm. You know what I mean? And you're trying to, trying to figure out which one is best. Well, good news. We figured out which one was best. But um, I think a lot of times we sort of do this, the same thing with our churches, don't we? We look for the right, the right fit, you know what I'm talking about? We compare and contrast, and we constantly measure if, if the time we're giving is worth it, if what we're exchanging is worth it. And again, mentioning, kind of pulling a string to some of the conversations we've been having. We talked about a couple weeks ago um, the process that we all go through when we're trying to find a church. Do you guys remember what I'm talking about? And we feel uh, like one that we can be connected to and that we could like and all those things. And so we look around for like compare and contrast the best fit for ourselves and so we're like, do they have the right worship style? Do they have the right vibe? Do they, you know, do they have the perfect, you know, barnwood backdrop? Whatever it is, right, <laughs> that we're looking for in a church, right? We ask things like, how's the location? Is it, do, I, do I enjoy the location? And you know what? I, I get that. And I want to make sure. And, and so some of us are like, I want to make sure I like where it is. I want to make sure there's good places to eat afterwards. Um, 
I'm not judging, but I literally have had people say to me, I love coming to church here because there's so many great lunch options. I'm just saying, like, keep that on the DL. I'm not sure Jesus wants to know that, okay? I'm not sure he wants to know you're choosing where to go based on lunch. Um, or maybe we ask, how friendly is the place, right? And we think, I mean, I don't want, I don't want like, you know, like the overly, like, fake friendly, but I also don't want, like, the distant and cold. I just want that right amount of pseudo-friendliness, you know what I mean? Some of us are thinking that, or, or what's the worship like? We want the ancient or the modern, whatever, maybe a mix of both, however you do that. Or, or the, and these are literal questions. I know these get asked. I, I want preaching that's 20 to 25 minutes. I want it to be funny, but I also want it to have Greek and Hebrew references, and I also want there to be postmodern philosophers while also staying with the classics. Give me a little Calvin. Give me a little Wesley. Take your flavor, right? And whatever. I also want it to be relevant but I also want to be rooted in first century church. Think about that one. I joke, but honestly, those are the things we think about. And we all get the process, and we all get the strangeness of the process. What we're talking about is finding a mature church, but I don't know if that's what we're all looking for. Do you get what I'm saying? We're looking for other things in a church. And Paul is changing the dialogue here. And he's starting to change and talk about what a church ought to be. And the first thing he says, shouldn't our number one question be, is this church, or am I becoming more like Jesus? Am I becoming more like Christ? You know, our team, our staff talks about this a lot. We talk about the fact that we have to be a group of people that are learning how to equip people, equip people to become more like Jesus. You know, our kids' ministry up there, if you're a teacher, you know this already, but our kids' ministry, they have this little chant they do every week. You guys know this? And they do it, that the teacher says like the first word, and then the, the kids fill in the rest one. And the very first one they say, and you guys that know this, you can just tell me what it is, but the teacher says, become more like Jesus. I love it. Way to go. Become more like Jesus. And they say, love God and others. And then they say, do things that matter. And they do this every week. And I love that they start with become more like Jesus. You know what I mean? I think we should just do that every week as a church. And we'll just, yeah. No, I'm just kidding. We won't. But um, we should, right? So perhaps the question for us is, am I more Christ-like today than I was a year ago? And I think so many ways, like, that, as I'm talking about us, right, as a church. How are we doing this? Are we helping one another become more like Christ? And you're like, how do I know that? Well, it's going to be evidenced through your stories, and the stories you're able to tell about what God's doing in you, it's going to be evidenced through the disciplines and the heart transformation that you're feeling. And do you feel like you're different than you were a year ago? So the second thing, that's the first thing Paul says. Second thing Paul says, we're just going through this today, if you haven't been able to tell. Second thing he says is, look, at, uh, it is a mature church is theologically driven. You're like, he didn't say that. Pretty much he did, let me tell you. So verse 13 and 14, reach union faith, knowledge of God, become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Verse 14, so then we will no longer be infants, little babies, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Now, I know you're like me. We love the kids. But kids will believe anything you tell them. They're very, very gullible, aren't they? I mean, when I was a kid, this is a true story. I don't know how old I was, but I remember someone telling me that if I swallowed a watermelon seed, that that watermelon would begin to grow inside of me and it would grow out my ears. And I was terrified of swallowing a watermelon seed, which makes me so grateful for seedless watermelons today, right? 
But I believe that, you know, it's like 12 or 13, something like that. No, it wasn't that. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I believe that. And sometimes it's cute and adorable what kids believe. And sometimes, and this is like a, the serious side of that, like the lies that can be told that kids, depending on how severe and what the intent was, they can be very damaging, right? Like it can ruin lives because they can believe anything. And sometimes it's cute, but sometimes it's not. And when we're immature, we can be easily deceived. Any teaching can come along, and it can totally throw us. Someone can hand you a book and say, all religions are the same, and you're like, well, maybe they are. Look, this guy sounds pretty convincing. Or, or, or perhaps you go to, as you get into high school, or you get into college, you get into a class, and someone says, oh, yeah, that the whole theology about the creator God thing, uh, yeah, I don't believe that. And then you're like, yeah, maybe that's not true. And we start to have this we get tossed back and forth in our beliefs, and I'm talking about really easy examples, but I could get into so many examples that I see happening within the church today among believers in which we are jettisoning, if you will, solid, firm, rooted theology for what I would call fleeting ideas, right, that just kind of come and they toss us back and forth. So then we get like, well, what does God really think about this? What does God really think about that? And most of the time, it's pretty clear what God thinks about it. We're just not sure if we understand it yet. And we don't really, we haven't spent the time to actually understand theology. So a mature church is actually theologically driven in which we are not going to be deceived. And what is it? There's three words he uses. The enemy will deceive us when, if we are childlike, and he uses three words. His first one he uses in cunning ways. Another version says trickery. And the, and the original word of that is actually connected to a game playing dice. So he would use dice, but it was a loaded dice. And so you're, you have no chance of winning this game. You're playing a game that's fixed against you, which you're going to lose. So there's going to be cunning ways. And then he's also used the word craftiness. This is the idea of a, of a mirror reflecting something back, but it's actually not, it's, it's a distorted image coming back to you. It's like those funhouse mirrors where you're looking at it like, oh, no, I'm tall and skinny. This one, I'm short and fat. And it's kind of like that, where you are, you are not seeing the truth. You're, not see, you're seeing a distorted reality. So the enemy will deceive you through a distorted reality. Anybody ever believe lies about yourself? See what I'm saying? And then he uses the word scheming. And scheming is a systemized error in a sophisticated way. Does that make sense? Someone is going to, in a sophisticated way, seed error in the way you see the truth. And so he says, I don't want you to be like a child where you're gullible and you believe everything that comes your way. I actually want you to grow up in your theology and your understanding of God. A lot of scholars believe that today's world, the postmodern world we live in, is actually one of the most difficult arrows of time for, for people to hide, find theological rootedness. Because we are, there are so, there's so much access to information in the world of thought and ideas that everything's coming at us, and because we aren't rooted, we are being tossed back and forth so easily right now. And so before, maybe there was a time in which, even though in the Ephesians, for example, first they had all sorts of philosophies, ideas floating around in their culture as well, but today it's, it's even different. But I think on the flip side, the positive side of today's world, which is really cool, is we have more access to resources and information than we ever have, which means we can become the most theologically astute generation of all time as well because we can actually have access to whatever we want to learn and what we ever want to know. And so all the world of thought and theology is available to us. Most of us just aren't tapping into it. Hmm. So to be a theologically driven church means we must constantly test what we're doing against not only what we know of God, but what 
we know of the scriptures. So that's the third thing he said, or that's the second thing. The third thing he says, he says a healthy, or excuse me, a mature church is relationally healthy. It's relationally healthy. So he goes on, he says, I'm going again, verse 14, he talks about the infants and all that kind of stuff. And then verse 15, he says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body. Remember, we're talking about maturity. Of him who is the head that is Christ. Here's that classic statement, speaking the truth in love. This is overused and abused, but it's intended to be good. Uh, I don't know about you, uh, but I don't think there's very many people that are good at this. You know what I'm saying? Either people don't speak at all, they stay silent, things are going on, need to be said, they just don't say anything, they avoid it. You with me? Or there's the trigger point where they blow up in anger and frustration and there's no love, right? So they're either not speaking or they're not using love. Are you with me? Yes? How many of you love when people speak the truth and love to you? How many of you love that? It's just a great moment. Someone's like, yeah, I really do. Most of us are like, no, I'm not really. Someone comes up and says, hey, do you have a minute? And you're like, no, I don't. <laughs> but do you have a minute? Because I have something I've been meaning to tell you, right? Most of us don't do this really well. And... Uh, we struggle with this. And how many of you been in a situation where there was truth spoken, but love was absent? That just feels like judgment, right? A lot of us have been in situations where people who are the church or are supposed to be the church will speak truth, but then they do it in a non-loving way, and we find ourselves hurt. And we don't just say we're hurt by them; we say we're hurt by the church. How many times I've heard that? And I understand it. However, when, when love without truth happens, that's insincere. Meaning, let's say I go to the doctor and I have heart, my heart's hurting, and my, my left arm is like limp like a spaghetti noodle, right? And I'm just like, I have a problem. And he goes, You know what though, man? You're such a good guy. And your your right arm is working great. What I need in that moment is not love and affirmation for the good things about me. I need him to tell me what's wrong with me. Are you with me? And so many times, that's what the church does. We love and affirm the people and all they are, but we won't ever speak the truth about the areas in which we need to help people get right. Are you with me? So we're talking about a mature church, right? So listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you don't know who he is, amazing guy. He was in the... uh, He was in Nazi Germany, put in a concentration camp, wrote so many amazing books about the Christian faith. And he says this. This is like going to, it blew my mind. But, you know, maybe I'm not as smart as you. So let's see what you think. Nothing can be more cruel than the lenience that abandons others to their sin. And nothing can be more compassionate than a severe reprimand which calls another Christian in your community back from the path of sin. Isn't that amazing? How many times I can think of where I have allowed lenience to be called love and how many times I've not extended compassion to my friend who's headed down a path that someone needs to say, brother, sister, I love you so much, and I'm going to walk with you back to the path 
that God wants you on. We have to learn to speak the truth to love to one another. I want people in my life who will do this. I want people in your life who will do this for you. I think you do too. This is what a mature church will become. Um, By the way, a church that doesn't care about what you do but loves to affirm you and just continues to to tell you how 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 you're wonderful, that isn't a really loving church, by the way. And then on the flip side, a church that this judges you because of sin. That's not a loving church. A loving church is one that will tell you the truth and then walk with you through anything. Are you with me? Okay, the final thing Paul says. I know we're just like trudging through this, but I hope this is really helpful. He says, a mature church has a place and purpose for everyone. Verse 16. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So, first of all, I read this and I think, man, this just means we need you. That's what I first thing I think. Like, when I'm reading this, I go, this means we need every person in the room, every person in the church. You bring something to the table, so to speak. You play a special part. Everyone in the body matters. Every one of you has something, not only to offer, that sounds even like weird. Once it's, it's, you have something that God has given you, a gift that God has given you, that he has given it to you for the purpose of his church. That's, I think we know that and we hear that, but what, yet we struggle to really employ gifts in the church and we reduce ourselves to really simple tasks. And I, although the simple tasks are important, you're bigger than simple tasks. You have more in you than just showing up and doing simple tasks. I love our serve teams, but you have more in you than just serving on a serve team. We need our serve teams, but we need more than you on our serve teams. We need you to be you, all of you, all that God has created you to be. The church needs you to be you, because here's what I get a picture of when I think of this verse. I think about, have you ever seen that? What happens in, the, in a body, right, is whenever something is not working properly, there's an overcompensation somewhere else. You know what I'm saying? Where something else has to overcompensate for the part that is lacking, and that always creates pain in the body. It creates pain and eventually grieving for what's missing. You ever seen a person who works out a lot, and they work out so much that they get really big, but they never do legs day? <laughs> and they have this huge upper body and these toothpicks for legs, right? This this is what I picture the church like sometimes, only it's probably not the, the upper body that's big. It's other things. I don't know what it is. It's just, just the, the forearms. It's like Popeye or something. I don't know what's going on. But, but what happens in the church is there are places and people in the church that are working really hard, and they're overcompensating for all of us who aren't. And what's happening is the church is going through so much pain and grieving because the body is not at work as it should be. Are you with me? And so what, what's needed is for every person to find its place and purpose in the body. For it to, every supporting ligament coming together so that we can become mature as the body of Christ. And I just feel like this is where a lot of us probably are right now in our life. A lot of us are sitting right here going, I'm here, I'm present, but I don't know if I would truly say I've found my place and purpose in the body. And I would say this, you have some ownership of that, but who else has some of the ownership of that? Those who are called to equip. 
And if we are teaching, and I say we because I'll put myself, if the church is teaching you that what it really is, what you're looking for, is that 25 perfect, 25 minute perfect sermon and then that perfect blend of worship style and, and oh yeah, polished ministries, that's what the church has often portrayed as the purpose of their existence. Well, then they have done a poor job in equipping you. Are you with me? Because we've instead said, what we're asking of you is to exchange your time for a bill of religious goods and services. And I'm saying to you, no, we don't want to be a clergy model where, this, where the minister or the staff does the work and the congregation consumes, but instead we want to be a church where there is people who are called to equip and there are saints who are called to do the work of ministry, and we together are going to be a fully functioning, mature body of Jesus with Jesus as the head of his church. Are you with me? That's what we want. And I think we know this, but sometimes we have to just like spell it out. And this is what Paul does. And that's what we're doing today. Paul is spelling out what it means to be a church. So I'm about done. And we're going to pray. We're going to worship. But we put so much focus which so much focus on the individual pursuit of God. Most of your life, I would, I would probably assume that most of your understanding of your relationship with the Lord is you personally and how you, how you are pursuing him. How much are you praying? How much are you devoing? Whatever it is that you do. And there's an individual focus when it comes to your relationship and especially your maturity. But here Paul changes the dialogue and says, what if we together as a church what if we would become more like Christ? What if together we figured that out and together we are encouraging one to become more like Jesus? What if together, what if together we were speaking the truth in love? And this was part of our practice and part of what we did every day. What if we were theologically rooted in the scriptures to where we wouldn't let one another be tossed back and forth, but we'd bring it back to Scripture. And what if every person had a place and purpose in the body? Are we there? Heck no. Are we close? Probably not. But there's a key word at the beginning of the Scripture that we will become. I look at the word become in such a beautiful way. It is a process. I am, who am I becoming, right? Who are we becoming as a church? And becoming is a trajectory, meaning if I believe all the things we do in this church are going to lead us to become another consumer-oriented church, well, I'm out. But if I believe what we're doing is giving us a trajectory to become this kind of church, I'm in. Are you with me? I want to become this kind of church. I want to become an Ephesians 4 church. And by the way, Ephesians 4 is not conclusive. It's not exhaustive. There's a lot of other things that especially Jesus said about being the church that I can't wait to get into. This is just a good list and a good part of some of the things that are in the scriptures that we must, we must pay attention to. And so I don't know how the Holy Spirit wants to speak to you today. I don't. I was actually thinking about this. Like, how do I close this? And I was I don't think I have to close it. I think you need to. I think you need to take this and you say, God, what are you saying to me? And, and, and what am I, where, am I, where am I going with this? Holy Spirit, would you speak to me? I think we need to pray for ears to listen, eyes to see what he wants us to do with the things that we read in the scriptures. And so today, I'm, that's my prayer, is that you would have ears to hear and eyes to see whatever it is you need to hear or see from these words in Ephesians 4. So, friends, let me say this and we'll pray. May we become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of 
Christ. May we become like Jesus. Amen.